All right, all right. It's the Foghorn, and that means it is time for the Cavish Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavis. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, Marine Commandant Berger spends time with reporters while at the Reagan Defense Forum. And Chris and I discuss the high points of the proposed National Defense Authorization Act. But first, a look at this week's Naval News. Well, as you just referenced, the House of Representatives on December 8th passed its version of the Fiscal 2023 National Defense Authorization Bill. The bill, which provides authorities and policies for the Defense Department, but not the actual funding of the Pentagon, authorized nearly $858 billion for national defense, including $32.6 billion for 11 Navy Battle Force ships. Three destroyers, two attack submarines, a frigate, one amphibious transport dock ship, two expeditionary fast transports, a fleet oiler, and a towing salvage and rescue ship. The three destroyers are the first of a 15-ship multi-year authority providing for three destroyers per year. We'll talk more about what's in the bill in a few minutes. Two U.S. Navy aircraft carriers this week emerged from significant overhauls and are returning to the fleet. The Carl Vincent on December 4th completed a six-month availability at North Island Naval Air Station in San Diego, while on the same day, Dwight D. Eisenhower wrapped up a 13-month overhaul at Norfolk Naval Station. Both ships will soon begin the process of qualifications and training in advance of their next deployments. Helicopter Mine Countermeasures Squadron 14, the vanguards of HM-14, flew its final squadron flight on December 8th in Norfolk, Virginia. The Vanguard, who specialize in mine countermeasures, conducted from MH-53 Echo Sea Dragon helicopters, are being disestablished in July 2023 after 45 years of service. HM-14 is one of only two Navy minesweeping helicopter squadrons, along with the Blackhawks of Helicopter Mine Countermeasures Squadron 15. Both are being disestablished as the Navy changes its approach to mine countermeasures with the fielding of new manned and unmanned systems. The Canadian frigates Vancouver and Winnipeg returned to Canada's West Coast Naval Base of Esquimalt December 5th after a seven-month cruise. The ships began the cruise by taking part in RIMPAC exercises in Hawaii. Crews to the South China Sea and Malaysia took part in numerous exercises, including a ballistic missile defense exercise, visited Japan, and carried out a Taiwan Strait transit. In new ship news, up at the General Dynamics Electric Boat Shipyard at Quonset Point, Rhode Island, a keel ceremony was held December 7th for the new Virginia-class attack submarine Arizona, SSN-803. It's the first time since 1914 that construction has begun for a U.S. Navy ship named Arizona. The first USS Arizona, of course, was a battleship that was sunk in the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. The Arizona sponsor, Nikki Stratton, is the granddaughter of then-seaman first-class Donald Stratton, who was a survivor of the attack. The sunken battleship continues to be maintained by the National Park Service, as a memorial to all those lost in the attack. There has been no no new USS Arizona since 1941, along with two other ships lost in in the attack, the USS Oklahoma and USS Utah. All three names now are being perpetuated with new submarines. And another keel ceremony was held on December 5th at General Dynamics NASCO Shipyard in San Diego. 
where Kathleen Kennedy Townsend was on hand to sponsor the new fleet oiler, Robert F. Kennedy, TAO 208. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. Last weekend, I had the opportunity to attend the Reagan National Defense Forum held at the Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California. This is a yearly event that is attended by senior leaders in government, the armed services, as well as industry. While we were at the Defense Forum, I had the opportunity to participate in a media roundtable with Commandant of the Marine Corps, David Berger. The general was kind enough to give us 30 or so minutes of his time. We picked out four or five clips that we thought would be of interest to our audience. The first clip is about the crisis in Ukraine. The general was asked what early lessons he and the Marine Corps writ large were taking from the information that was being shared back by the Ukrainians and our other allies in the theater. Here is General Berger. I think we still have a lot to learn first. We got we got to keep extracting everything we can possibly learn out of there. I think you're, I would agree with you 100%. Not all of it is applicable in every other kind of environment, but okay, fine. Logistics. Huge. We're going to need not just the ability to move around, like your point about. We need to move things around. We need to move ammunition around, fuel, ordnance, and move it around often enough that it can't get targeted. Mm -hmm. uh, and optimally, like if her unit is moving from one location to another, mm -hmm. we have to get to the point where when she gets there, whatever she needs when she gets there for her unit is, is meeting her there if that makes sense, but no more, mm. or else it's uh, vulnerable. So I'm, I'm, we, we are looking hard at logistics, logistics, logistics. And a lot of that I think will be unmanned. A lot of that will be helped, enabled by artificial intelligence that already knows, like her unit has expended this amount of rounds of this type mm. already. They already know. The system knows that. So there's no human being like ordering ammunition or fuel. They, if we can get to the part where it's already, already uh, the artificial intelligence is laid over top that can sort through all of that and know, get that there at two o'clock in the afternoon because that will marry up perfect. Mm -hmm. now, isn't it? War isn't perfect, but I think the lift out of Ukraine, you gotta be able to distribute people, you gotta be able to distribute aircraft, you have to be able to distribute logistics, and you have to move, relocate, be able to relocate yeah. within a certain cycle or else they, they, if they can find you, they can kill you. Mm -hmm. Intel, intelligence. Fascinating to me, the amount of unclassified uh, intelligent or information that the Ukrainians are using to track every Russian vehicle and aircraft because everybody's got a phone, right? So it's, this is the first time we've seen it. Now we have our own intelligence from all kinds of systems. But what's working for Ukrainians, I think will work around the world, people. People reporting, people moving information, all unclassed, all just at the speed of it. Why is, why is that relevant? And I don't want, I don't want to uh, see what you have, but like in our world, like exquisite intelligence, you may try to use one other um, collection way to affirm that, to confirm that, right? Maybe what you saw on a satellite, you use one other method to say, yeah, that's true. But when 500 people are reporting on their phones, it's like crowdsourcing, it's verification in a whole nother way. 
and you get I think they get to 95% yeah that's true that is a convoy of 10 vehicles because a hundred people were saw it on their cell phones I had never thought of that before we don't we had just conventionally been taught you know the traditional sort yeah. of signals intelligence and human intelligence but this is human intelligence with people's phones it's amazing in a good way it didn't take long for the conversation to shift to budgets and while the commandant kept his cards close to his chest he did express optimism that the marine corps would fare pretty well when it came to amphibious ships and the enablers for amphibious operations here is a brief snippet of the general talking about the 2024 budget i'm optimistic I'm, i think it's going to be okay i think we're going to be okay uh, for a lot of reasons people inside the pentagon and people in congress that know the value of amphib ships, not just the ships. That's not the right way even to talk about it. The ships with the Marines as an element, that's what's so valuable to combatant commanders. A whole bunch of people before me have called them like the Swiss Army Knights. They are. They can do 13 different things, right? So they're so incredibly valuable to the United States. I'm, I'm optimistic it'll work, at, work itself out. In March of 2020, Commandant Berger released Force Design 2030. This grabbed many people's attention both in and out of the Marine Corps among the active and retired Marine Corps community. The general was asked what remaining priorities he has to enact Force Design 2030 and where his attention was in the last seven to 10 months left in his term as Commandant. There aren't any uh, short list of things that I, I check off, but I think to me, first was getting the idea right, the concept right. And then force design was the umbrella over top of that with how are we gonna need to operate in the future and what capabilities might we need that we, that we don't have right now. To answer your question, it's the training and education part and it's the um, human part, the talent management part. Those, when those two as they are right now, get enough steam underneath them and we put enough resources into it, all will come together. So it's not a date, it will not stop. Modernization never ends. But I think I'll be comfortable if there's enough movement on the training and education, and I think you'll see something here pretty, pretty shortly that looks a lot like Force Design 2030, only it's training and education, because it matches that. It's built to do that and talent management, those, those are the keys. The way that we train Marines right now is largely the same way as we trained them 30 years ago. That's got to change because there's better ways to train right now. And they're based on the individual rate of learning and how you can absorb stuff that's different than him, that's different than Paul, different than Dave. Okay, when we can get to that point where all of us are learning at a different speed, graduating on a different day, uh, then we're in great shape. We have to give each of you and me multiple skill sets. It can't be just one trained in one specialty anymore because our assumption is we're going to operate austere and forward. So you have to be able to do like medical things and you have to fix radios and, you know, and be a sniper. So each one of us has to have be trained in multiple skills. And the skills, lastly, I would think, in the training and education have to match what you're, each one of us is built differently. So if you're already inclined to, in a certain way, 
makes sense for us to train you in that way, in that skill set. I don't know a better way to say it. Yeah. In our last snippet, we shared the Commandant's thoughts on what parts of his legacy he hopes his relief will continue to carry on as he turns over the reins of the Marine Corps sometime this summer or early next fall. It's not unique to me, but it's people. Yeah. A lot of talk here, as every year, is about technology, and it should be, but the Marine Corps is built around if we, if we ever lose that focus, we'll be in trouble. Now, that's not new to me. It can't also end with me. If the, if the Marine Corps ever drifts away from that focus, the Marine is this, that's the center point, we're in trouble. Mm. We're not going to, but that will be what I tell them. Like don't, all the technology and whiz bang stuff doesn't matter if you don't have the right human being. Mm. That's our greatest resource in the Marine Corps. It's not tech. It's not pretty simple, I know, but that's true. General Berger is a leader that knows where he wants to take his service. Spending this little amount of time with him drove home the point that he has a vision for the Marine Corps. You can see it in his eyes. You can hear it in his voice as he talks about everything from the tactical to the strategic. The ability to get his impressions on where the Marine Corps is today, where he hopes to take it, and the work that he has unfinished in the last seven to 10 months and then what he hopes that his successors will carry on was a great opportunity for me personally and hopefully in the brief snippets that we were able to share with you you're able to feel the same sort of passion that he has for the marine corps we'll continue to bring you these types of interactions with senior leaders as we more and more get out and about whether it's at conferences or whether it's one-on-ones well that was pretty interesting chris I got a question. Did uh, General Berger mention the light amphibious warship, the law? You talked about that at all? He did. Um, and it's funny because it was one of the clips that I uh, almost added when deciding on what to uh, put in. Uh, Berger is a big fan of the law. He thinks it's important. He thinks that um, we don't need to wait necessarily for a new platform to begin to develop con-ops, which I was pleasantly surprised to hear about. Um, you know, I have been a critic of necessarily waiting for a new platform while I think that you could either use, uh, current gray holes, or you could use other, um, you know, contracted ships to begin this type of logistic movement. And Berger was all about that. So I, I feel much better about the laws. I feel much better about their plan in the, um, Indo-PACOM theater than maybe I did even a few months ago, Chris. No, um, I, you know, there was no mention that I could find of the law in the authorization bill, which was kind of odd, I thought, um, for something that it is, it is a new type of ship. It's the only new type of ship, really, that's, that's on the near horizon. Uh, they've already pushed it back a couple of years. I think procurement's not supposed to start till 2025 now, but still, it's a big deal. There's some, there are some concept uh, ships that are out there uh, developing this stuff. There was no sense of Congress in the off bill about those ships. Um, and I, it was uh, what was odd was they have this, um, oh gosh, where is it here? Covered ships provision. They authorized procurement of up to five covered ships, which you had, I was reading through this and trying to figure out what are they talking about? Um, you know, so what, this is not an open Viking longboat? I mean, what does that mean? 
and event, I thought it was the law, but then it turned out they defined it as either San Antonio class LPDs or America class LHAs, which are assault ships, I mean, amphibious ships, bigger, big amphibious ships. One of the clips that we included in that segment was what does he hope that his um, relief will follow up on? I thought he would say either the amphibs or the laws. He kind of punted a bit and went with people. I mean, that's an easy thing to talk about, but not unexpected if you're the Marine Commandant. I mean, the people are the central point of the Marine Corps, and he's made that a point. But I was kind of hoping he would double down a bit on amphibs uh, and specifically laws. Um, but he, he didn't when asking that question. No, I mean, I mean the, the whole future of the amphib, the big amphib force has been in question. But, uh, you know, the, the bill, the, the Auth Act, reiterates their requirement for 31 big amphibious ships. The Navy's already been saying we're going to stop building amphibious ships, something which, which uh, strikes fear and terror into the heart of uh, Huntington Ingalls shipbuilding down in Pascagoula, where they build all of those ships. Um, but this, uh, this, re- this bill reiterates congressional support for that. And, you know, the law, for all the, all the Sturm and Drang that comes out of this law, I think, you know, General Berger has yet to convince people that this is a viable concept. It's yet to be widely adopted within the Pentagon, within the joint strategies. Uh, you read all about it. It sounds great. Then you start getting into practical matters. And it, it just kind of falls apart. And it's, it's and this debate is not there. I just thought it was interesting that this, this so, bill tips over. So Berger's point is, is that the logistics and the refueling of Marines on islands or, you know, in different places in the Pacific has to be just in time. It can't be there ahead of time because there's fear that the Chinese or the potential adversary, you know, depending on how political you are, the potential adversary would take those out if you, you know, bunker um, material ahead of time. And and he really believes that the the laws is what's going to allow him to move logistics quickly across the theater. Um, I was impressed. I have to say, I mean, I said it in my package piece, Chris, I was impressed with how the argument in which he put forward in terms of the need to take lessons learned from Ukraine and um, begin to think about or expand upon what they've already thought about for the Indo-Pacific theater. When you listen to General Berger talk, he's very persuasive. It's not so much that he doesn't have a plan. He clearly has a plan. And he stands out among service leaders as someone who really is trying to, to move his force forward in, in a different direction. But it's not at all clear that a lot of what he's talking about has really sunk in and, 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 and been um, codified, if you will. So when you talk about his legacy, uh, both you know, CNO and uh, CNO Gilday and Commandant Berger uh, will reach the end of their terms this year during 2023. Theoretically, unless they're extended, um, they'll be CNO and a new Commandant. And it's not at all clear to me that a lot of these things, uh, a lot of force design 2030 will remain um, once he's gone. It's certainly an open question. And once he goes, we'll all be looking for that. But in the meantime, it's, it is the plan of the day and they're, and they're moving forward. So looking at some other aspects here, um, I'll tell you, you know, this, this bill, uh, there's, there are a number of stories being, being talked about in the bill, uh, including things like the, you know, the, 
uh, removing penalties for the COVID, for not getting a COVID vaccination, other provisions. There are 4,400 pages plus in this bill. It is crammed, filled, full with stuff. Uh, yeah. Stuff and stuff and stuff. And of course, it's all over the place. So nobody's really got a really coherent view of this yet. And, you know, I, I remind folks that these things are put together in, in a sort of an amazingly haphazard fashion. And, you know, what hath Congress wrought is a fun game to play every, every year. It doesn't matter this year or any year. Um, when these big bills come out, what do these guys do? And there's the, you know, there's the House, there's the Senate, there's the, this is the authorization bill, there's an appropriations bill, which is a whole different set of people that put the money into this stuff. And then everybody has to read this stuff and figure out what is it, what is it that Congress just asked us to do? And it, it is a truly fun game. It's, I mean, talk about wonky, very <laughs> But it's kind of a fun, wonky game to try to figure out what did the appropriators mean by this? What did the authorizers mean by this? What are we actually supposed to do? And a lot of times, and a lot of times, a lot of times, folks, these things don't add up. Somebody says you could, you have to do this. Somebody else says you can't use any money to do that. Which are you supposed to do? I don't know. They're both law. Good question. So anyway, as you as you go through this, um, I will note that uh, this is a serious plus up from the Biden administration's request earlier. Um, the Navy asked for nine ships. They got 11. Uh, they only asked for two destroyers. They got an extra destroyer. Um, they asked for a nine ship multi-year procurement authority. They got a 15 ship multi-year procurement authority. What that means is that um, essentially the Navy and Congress is guaranteeing to the suppliers, the industry, that we're going to buy these ships. We're going to buy at least nine. We're going to buy at least now 15. So you can order components in quantity. And there's, there's always, there are always cost savings that come with that. So it, it, it only goes to an, um, a mature program where everything's really well understood. The destroyer program falls under that. Um, but they had, you know, they asked for, the Navy asked for $27 billion to buy ships, a huge amount of money. They got 32 and a half. That's immense. Um, it only buys you 11 ships, but that's also indicative of how expensive these things are. Um, Chris, what else really stuck at you? I mean, as, as you go through this and you really kind of just do, do, do searches for keywords and things to, to find stuff, what, what has popped out at you? One, I would say, is that there is a belief that if there is indeed a appropriations bill, um, the authorizers believe that the appropriations bill will be very close to, if not right at the um, number that the authorizers uh, put forward. So they're, they're comfortable that the money will flow along with the authorizations. But on an author authorization standpoint, the fact that there's a change in the Title 10 mission of the Navy to account for the presence mission that you know most navalists sort of believe that was inherent, but that hopefully would um, come along with O&M money to really account for that, um, that presence mission. That caught my attention. The second was the um, inclusion of the um, Naval Commission that uh, Elaine Loria put in. And so what, what will that mean for 
um, the the Congress. And then, you know, like you said, I mean, there are a lot of small things here and there that you have to read through. And I've been trying to do that. But those are the two big ones from a maritime standpoint that caught my attention. That's good. Of course, this is this roles and missions uh, clause is something that Representative Gallagher put in, who's been on the show several times. I'll, I'll, I'll just read it. It's, 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 it's pretty simple. Um, they insert a, a line in Title 10 of the U.S. Code about the role and mission of the Navy that says uh, a part of its uh, duties are for the peacetime promotion of the national security interest and prosperity of the United States. The key word there is peacetime, peacetime promotion, uh, which, which is interpreted as deterrence. Um, and uh, Mr. Gallagher thought it was necessary to, to put that in there. It's not just war fighting. Navy actually pretty much pushed back on that. I'm not sure why. D disappointingly pushed back on it, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the CNO missed an opportunity to emphasize what is the role that most combatant commanders believe the Navy is there for, right? I mean, there's a lot of us that have served in uniform and those of us that have covered the Navy believe that the Navy's job is not only to win and, uh, or to fight and win wars, but it's to prevent wars. And um, Gallagher's provision kind of codifies that. Uh, and really in response to what has become an issue with DOD and particularly um, the office within OSD uh, of CAPE in terms of making sure that the Navy gets funded and that their capabilities account for this deterrence mission. So I, I think this, it, you know, if indeed it passes on the Senate side, I think this is an important step forward for the Navy as they look to then build budgets in the future and as they kind of plan for what we had kind of already thought was the Navy's mission. Well, you know, we, we could literally talk all night, all week, all day, all, all month about what's in this bill, but doggone it, we don't have that much time. But I, I have to just say, you know, that I, I, I do like the, the provision in here for the establishment of the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. Yes, to carry out the duties of the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force, UFOs, spooky music. <laughs> <laughs> pretty good including those pertaining to unidentified anomalous phenomena i love talk like that it is so sexy anyway there's the, there is a lot of stuff in here some of it's even almost fun uh but that, I'm, I'm afraid that's about all the time we're going to have spent on that bit of wonkiness there will be more now hear this now hear this all right you know what that means well mr cavis has some thoughts this week on the issue of ship repair capacity and innovation. Thanks, Chris. Well, this week I was over at uh, Sparrows Point near Baltimore, Maryland, to have a good look at the wooden sailing sloop Constellation in Dry Dock. Pretty cool stuff indeed. And while the ship was truly fascinating, you know, it's not every day you have a chance to walk underneath a big ship dating from 1854. What was also interesting was where the dry docking is taking place in something called Sparrows Point Shipyard. I had no idea what Sparrows Point Shipyard was. I know the area was once an immense, sprawling, Bethlehem steel industrial complex that included the world's largest steel mill and a major shipbuilding operation. Today, all that is gone, replaced by huge distribution centers and a variety of training and storage facilities. The shipyard itself finally closed in 2004, 
and nearly all its facilities have been demolished. But one relic of those days remains, a huge graving dock, a dry dock in which big ships can be built as well as repaired. The dry dock is huge, 1,200 feet long, four football fields, and 200 feet wide. Tucked up in one corner is the tiny constellation, not even 200 feet long. But what is Sparrows Point Shipyard, I asked? Well, it turns out it's not a shipyard in the traditional sense, with land facilities and workers. It's just a dry dock and a couple cranes. Historic Ships in Baltimore, the organization that operates the constellation, rented the dry dock and equipment, hired shipyard workers for the job, hired the expertise needed to plan and execute the task. Voila, instant shipyard. This particular operation will close out when the constellation is towed back to Baltimore's Inner Harbor and another client already is lined up to undertake its own work in the dock. Well, this sort of pop-up shipyard is a model that is growing in various parts of the country. An operation with minimal permanent infrastructure, facilities and workforce, an adaptable and expandable organizational model, better equipped to withstand the inconsistencies of weather or customer funding. And it has implications for the Navy and the Coast Guard. I've seen this sort of thing in Florida and in Virginia, with yards doing work for the Coast Guard and for the Navy's Military Sealift Command. And it is an industrial model that appears to be expanding. At the moment, it doesn't seem really applicable for more sophisticated work such as an Aegis destroyer, but it seems to be working for less complex jobs. It might also have the potential to handle emergent repair work. It's not perfect, of course. One cannot replace the experienced workforce needed to support a naval warship, and, it, and specialized facilities are usually not so portable. But the model has certain applications, and it's one more piece in the overall capacity issue that is a central feature of any discussion of Navy shipbuilding and support. Thanks, Chris. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Bagramaradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. And bye-bye. <laughs>